The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Work through the baptism, the temptation, the Sermon on the Mount uh, leading up to Easter. So that's where we're headed. And uh, so today we're going to we're going to start into Matthew's gospel. And I just want you to take note that this gospel does not begin with once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We love fairy tales uh, and we love most of the Star Wars movies. Um, <laughs> but those aren't the world we live in. They're not real time, place, and history. And the New Testament begins seemingly very boringly um, with a genealogy. And in today's world of action, short attention spans, blockbuster movies, CGI graphics, chase scenes, explosions, and thrills, and Matthew begins his gospel with a ground wire. Matthew 1 is the big ground wire that grounds this story to this world. Jesus was God as John 1 wants us to understand, but Jesus is a man with a family tree, just like you and me. The Christmas story isn't a fable, it's not a fairy tale. It's about history and historical facts. If Jesus wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and born in Bethlehem, if this is just imagination or spin, then so is your salvation and your eternal destiny. You would have no purpose in this life, and you would have no future, and you would just be a product of matter, motion, and chance, and you're wasting your time even being here this morning. But if God is with us, as Emmanuel, uh, this theme of Matthew states, then he's with us always. When two or three are gathered in your midst, Jesus says, I'm with you. That's only in Matthew. And how does Matthew end? Go and tell this good news and behold, I'm with you always. Emmanuel, bookends from beginning to end. And so let's take a look at this conversation that it's one of these things that if you miss the beginning of a movie, you ever find yourself playing catch up the rest of the movie? What Matthew is showing us is that if you've come to this conversation late and you don't understand the connection of the Old Testament, you're not going to understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. And so Matthew is sewing together with divine threads the Old Testament and the New Testament with this genealogy. So let's give attention to God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the de deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the de deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Wow, let's pray. Father, help us to see how all scripture uh, is inspired and useful for us and God-breathed and it's for our sanctification. And so we ask that you would help us to see what you would have us to see, how this uh, connects the old and the new and how it all points to Jesus. And we pray that he would be our hope, our joy, and our peace. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Genealogies are very important. And yet, if we're honest, we tend to skip over these genealogies, don't we, when we read the Bible. If you're doing one of those read through the Bible in a year's beyond, when you get to First Chronicles, and you, you know, you, do you read every single jot and tittle? You kind of tend to skim over those stories. One of the purposes, I think, and not so much Matthew, but I think of the genealogies, when you do get to these longer genealogies, remember Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God makes these incredible promises to Abraham and that he's gonna be the father of a multitude of nations. And look up into the skies in Genesis 15, he says, they're gonna be more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. And so when you're reading these long genealogies that you're never gonna get through, you can start to say, thank you for fulfilling Genesis 12. Thank you, I'm seeing it, 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 I'm seeing it. And on and on. God is fulfilling his promises. And yet we do tend to downplay these genealogies, and yet this is where this story begins for us. This is the, the very beginning of the New Testament is a genealogy. And it reminds me of a story I heard in seminary, and I wish I had all the, the proper details of which country this was, but there was a missionary that went to uh, an unreached people group to translate the scriptures into their native tongue, and he purposely skipped the genealogies, and I think what he did was he, with the gospels, he gave them first the gospel of John, and he gave them the gospel of Mark, but he skipped over the genealogies which were in Luke and Matthew. And if you remember, the Gospel of John starts so powerfully emphasizing Jesus' deity that it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning about Jesus and that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it all leads up to the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Impressive beginning but no converts. So when this missionary then translated later, Matthew, converts. What happened? The tribal people explained that we really didn't think Jesus was human. People have a harder time believing in Jesus' humanity, full humanity, than they do his deity. They could get that he's God and he's far off, but that he's become just like us, that was, that was the missing piece of the puzzle. You see, when they got the genealogy, they said, then we knew. It was the missing piece. You see, we need all the puzzle pieces. That all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, even these first 17 verses of Matthew. Now, we all know that family trees are important. They explain a lot about our roots, that was the name of one of the most famous TV miniseries ever. Some of you are old enough like me to remember it. I can barely remember it. It came out in 1976. But if you told Alex Haley, the author of the novel Roots, the saga of an American family, that genealogies are not a big deal, he would probably find that to be a very painful and dismissive statement. For Haley, who for 12 years traced his family roots before he wrote the novel, he traced his roots back to Kunta Kinti, his ancestor who was kidnapped from Gambia or the Gambia, the smallest country in Africa, which is surrounded by Senegal and West Africa. But he traced it back, his ancestors, back to 1767. And his ancestor was transported to Annapolis, Maryland. And he did 12 years of research and he traced the record of the ship, the Lord Ligonier. And for Haley, he says, the most emotional moment of his life occurred on September 29th, 1967, when he stood at the site in Annapolis, Maryland, where his ancestor had arrived from Africa in chains exactly 200 years before. Roots are important. Well, look again at this genealogy and how it begins. Matthew gives us bookends to understand this genealogy. Matthew has a narrative, and he's writing, and his intentions are clear. So verse 1 and verse 17 have bookends. The main points Matthew doesn't want us to miss. Here are the points. Jesus is the Messiah. He is called in verse 1 and verse 17, he is called Christ. And that's not a cuss word, and it's not a last name. It's a title meaning anointed, or more specifically, Messiah. The first great truth we learn about Jesus' genealogy is that Jesus is this promised Messiah. And Matthew wants to highlight a couple periods in particular, three. If you look down to verse 17, he says, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Stephen Dempster, in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, 
He ha I have that quote there that's in the, uh, your bulletin for the reflection quote. He focuses on this and he brings out something that you may not know, I didn't know this. He focuses on the Davidic ancestry as his genealogy begins with Abraham and is structured in three equal epics of 14 generations, from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile, and from the exile to, to Jesus. He says, the number 14 accentuates David since it is the numerical value of his Hebrew name. Jesus is a new David, the culmination of Israel's history, who will bring about an end to the exile. And so according to Matthew, the exile doesn't really officially end until Jesus' birth, here in verse 17. And so Matthew also wants us to see that his gospel isn't just about a new David, you're also going to learn a lot about a new Israel because everything that Israel encountered, Jesus is going to redo. So you're going to get 40 days in the wilderness, equivalent to 40 years in the wilderness. And you'll see, you're going to see lots of, you know, instead of going to Mount Sinai, he goes to the Sermon on the Mount and gives the law. There's going to be a lot about the new Israel. There's going to be a lot about the new David. But there's also this idea that Matthew wants us to see that his gospel is a new Genesis. You see... The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, was translated in 250 B.C. from Hebrew to Greek. Well, Genesis 5 in the Septuagint is the exact same words as the beginning of Matthew 1.1. So if you knew your, your uh, Septuagint, you would instantly say, oh, just like you read John 1.1 and you say, oh, that sounds like Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. Well, here it's the same idea. This is the book of the generations of Adam, is Genesis 5.1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Well, Matthew 1.1 begins with a book of generations as well. But now we're going to learn about the last Adam, or the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So if you know anything about Genesis 5, it's one of the most depressing chapters of Scripture in the Bible. And the reason it's depressing, and I actually have heard a story of a guy getting converted reading Genesis 5. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce tells the story because after each little vignette or person is mentioned, it'll say he died. So we read about Adam and it says he died. Then we learn about Seth and he died. Then we read about Enosh and he died. We read about Kenan and he died. We read about Jared, Methuselah, Lemek, and he died. And eight times, every refrain ends with, and he died. And so this guy realized, I'm going to die. The wages of sin is death, and I need a savior. Well, the point of Matthew here, beginning here, is to bring a new Genesis that doesn't end in death. There is no he died here about Jesus. You get to the end of Matthew, and what do you have? A resurrection. You have Jesus ascending and now he's with us always. He gives us his, his spirit. And so this is just the opposite of Genesis 5, this second Genesis. Now, for Jesus, his family tree is full of, as, as one pastor put it, full of promises and princes, but it's also full of prostitutes and pagans. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly in this chapter. And I'm not even going to mention the ladies in this genealogy because there's so much here. That's next week's message from Pastor Ben. But if you know your Old Testament, 
you would know these names that are attached to Jesus's family tree are names like Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Jehoiachin, and his brothers. These, this is a pretty savory lot. I mean, Manasseh, for example, burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. 2 Kings 21.5. This is part of Jesus' family tree. The point is, is that Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family line. And so when the angel tells Joseph to name the baby Jesus, or Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins, it's a backward look to your whole family tree. They're all full of sin. And the good news is that Jesus came not for the righteous. He came for sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed of his family tree. I got buried in a book this past week that my father-in-law's wanted me to read for a while. And it's a weird story. It's about the Zodiac Killer from the late 60s, early 70s. And this killer, has, it's, this case is still opened. Well, this man claims that the Zodiac Killer uh, is his father. Well, the guy in this story happens to be Kim's grandmother's cousin, which would connect our family, third, fourth cousins, to if this story was true to the Zodiac Killer. And so my father-in-law and I were kind of discussing the book, and we both were happy to admit, well, it's not our line, it's Kim's line and Haddon, you know, and it's really not us, you know, we, we are, we're okay. And, and we were laughing, but there was an element of like, who wants to really go there and admit that you have a descendant in your family tree that is a killer? That's pretty scary stuff. Well, if we all look back at our family tree and we go back to the very first death of the Bible, Adam's first son killed his brother. Cain murdered Abel, and Cain is in all of our family trees, and in Jesus's too. So throughout this passage, you're reading, and it says, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac Jacob, and so on. However, when we get to verse 16, Matthew writes things a little differently. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Isn't it interesting how carefully Matthew states that? What he's saying is Joseph is not the physical father of Jesus. He is the father in a legal sense, in a covenantal sense. But Jesus is born of Mary. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we confess in the creed. He is not of Joseph's seed. So Joseph's the legal human father of Jesus, Matthew's reminding you, but not his physical human father. And the reason is, is because what Matthew is holding up for us is that Jesus has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at in two weeks. He is God, and yet he's man. And as the God-man, he is not contaminated with original sin. Like you and I are, we're conceived in sin, as Psalm 51.5 states. And the idea is that because of sin passing down from Adam's line, that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And we are, guilt, we are contaminated and guilty of Adam's first sin. 
and that is passed on from generation to generation. So the reason Jesus had to be born of a virgin is so that he would not be contaminated with original sin. So your very salvation depends on believing in a virgin birth. Otherwise, you don't have any righteousness. You don't have it from Jesus because Jesus would be contaminated from conception. But Jesus' righteousness that's imputed to you and given to you goes all the way back to conception. That's where it began. And it ended with him ascending into heaven. All of that is righteousness that through one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. And who's the one man? Jesus, not us. So our very righteousness that's given to us is somebody fulfilling the law on our behalf and then paying for all of our infractions, all of the ways that we've broken the law. That's what Jesus is on a mission to come and do. And in that mission, Matthew wants to connect us to see that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us and that he's gonna save his people from their sins. He's like us in every way, yet without sin. And Matthew wants to connect Jesus to two main people in this genealogy, Abraham and David. And God has made several stupendous promises in the Old Testament. One of them being that he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, through which that's the kind of the spine of the Bible, which everything else is built on, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And Sarah was barren. And, and they keep waiting on this promise and waiting and waiting. And God had to supernaturally intervene to fulfill this promise. God does something even greater, doesn't he, in this second Genesis story? Mary's conception is even more profound than Sarah's. Abraham and Sarah were super old, beyond the point of having children. And they have this child named Isaac, which meant he laughs. And they laugh that God had provided supernaturally. Well, now we also see, looking back on this story through the lens of, of Isaac, we see the gospel pointing us. It's pointing forward in that story. It's a foreshadowing. When Abraham took up Isaac to Mount Moriah, and Ab we're told in Genesis 22, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. And here's the great question of the rest of the Old Testament. Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so both of them went on together. And John the Baptist answered that question. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the Lamb caught in the thicket, in the thicket of the plots of men. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the Messiah promised to Abraham, to Abraham's seed to bless the world, going to bless the world through the sacrifice, through this offering of him being tied to the wood on a tree and given up 
to pay for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his stripes, we're healed. And what about David? David was given stupendous promises too. And you can read about them in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 where we get the Davidic covenant. But there's also several messianic psalms that we don't talk about very much. And you write these down and read these this week. Psalm 72, 89, and 132. They are neglected messianic psalms. And each of those psalms, God is going to promise to David that he's going to put one of David's sons on a throne who's going to rule forever and ever. And this promise is not fulfilled in Solomon. It's, Solomon's reign was glorious, but these psalms speak of something much greater. God had said, I will set up your seed after you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he shall be my son. And the Lord has sworn in truth unto David that he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. And this king from his seed will reign, as Psalm 72 says, as long as the sun and moon endures. That certainly isn't Solomon or any of his predecessors. We are told that he will sit on the throne. Uh, His throne should be as the days of heaven, Psalm 89. Jesus is the lamb, but he's also the promised king of David. And Jesus keeps getting called throughout the gospel as the son of David. And one of these key passages in Matthew and Mark is the blind men calling out. And they're calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus is the son of David. And when they're crying out, Hosanna, when when Jesus comes uh, on Palm Sunday and he comes in, the children are crying out. Who are they crying out to? Hosanna to who? To the son of David. You see, Jesus is this son of David. He's this great king. And he comes at a time when, when it, things do not seem very bright for Israel. It's this time of exile. It's, it seems like all is dark. Like, really? Where's the promise that you're going to have someone sit on the throne forever? We're, we're, we're under the thumb of Rome. And if ever there was what we might call a stump of Jesse, it was this little peasant woman on the backside of Bethlehem, under the thumb of the Roman kingdom for their taxation purposes that they would have to travel there. And yet she's fulfilling scripture that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem just as David was. He's from David's town and this stump of Jesse is gonna come, the shepherd king, who's also the lamb. And so the good news today for us, as mentioned at the beginning of the service, is that we are now these people that follow Jesus. And we're still in exile. We're not home yet. We're still strangers and pilgrims on our way to the promised land. And we have this lamb who was willingly caught in the thicket for us. He laid down his life. And yet he's also the king who reigns in heaven right now. And how we long for the second advent, when he will come again and reign in glory on this earth. My question for you this morning as we come to the table, is he your lamb? 
who suffered for you? Do you give him your sins? And is he your king of glory? Who gets the glory in your life? Who are you giving all the glory to? Is he your lamb? Is he your king? He is the Messiah. Worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king of glory. We thank you that you came and suffered and died on our behalf. And we thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And now as we come to the table, we know that you are with us. Even now, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here in our hearts. We ask that you'd feed us at your table. Remind us of all your promises. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.